Hey, thanks, Mike and Renee. Great job. Guys, if you haven't caught an episode of Youth Group Live, you really should check it out. It's, it's fun, it's inspiring, and I guarantee Mike will challenge you in your faith. The past episodes are available on YouTube and on the MHCC Facebook page. Now, before I get started, I want to quickly follow up on the survey Renee mentioned during the announcements. Yes, the elephant in the room question of when is church going to open again? I got to tell you, my initial response is that the church is open. It never closed. This church, your church, our church is alive and well and meeting as we are biblically commanded to do. Just not in the room yet. That's why it has been and will continue to be so critical, and I mean critical, for your faith and family and for our church that you guys continue to keep this hour, either 9 or 10.30, holy. And by that, I mean you set it apart for the purposes of God every Sunday morning. Make a deal with yourself. See, the church, it's not just meeting online. It's actually ministering all over the place. You guys have been so incredibly generous in terms of helping us stock our local food pantry, serving meals and blessing our frontline healthcare workers at the Morristown Memorial Hospital, collecting toys for all the kids in isolation there. I mean, guys, I've been bringing the toys that you've been sending in from Amazon into Grace House every single day. It's crazy. You're caring for one another. You're delivering meals to, to clients of Family Promise. And Beyond the Walls, our nonprofit, they were just able to donate nearly $50,000 to hunger relief in the communities that we serve together in Guatemala. Guys, the church is not closed. It's alive and well. It's just left the building for a little bit. Now, trust me. Trust me. Nobody wants to get back into this room more than me. Preaching to an empty room is a bit of a drag. Our staff, the elders, and I, we're well into the planning stages of how and when we can do that. First, we're going to need the okay from the local authorities whom God has placed over us. We need them to give the all clear. And then second, we're going to need to figure out how to provide the safest possible environment for everybody who chooses to come. Now, that's challenging for our church because if you're familiar with what a normal Sunday looks like here, the place is usually packed shoulder to shoulder with hundreds and hundreds of people. And obviously, we're going to need to make some changes to ensure that everyone's safe. So as we plan, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you're thinking. So it's super important for us to get those survey results back from you so we can plan as best as possible for gathering in person again as quickly and safely as possible. So guys, help us out and take the few minutes necessary to fill the survey out when it comes later this week. All right, here's what I want to talk with you about this week. Scales and mirrors, mirrors and scales. If you are like me at this point, and the last thing I want to tune into anymore is a discussion on coronavirus. At this point, it's not just the TV shows, it's not just the news. I can't even find a commercial that isn't focused on coronavirus. And trust me, I'm not making light of the virus or the situation. But gosh, it would be nice to, to have some hope and some positivity. And that's why I've been having us focus on using this once-in-a-lifetime life pause, if you will, and, and using it, making the most of the opportunity, in a sense, to make some long-overdue changes within ourselves, in our lives, we have some time to do that right now. We've been biblically commanded to examine ourselves. And there is nothing like a mirror and a scale to examine ourselves. Mirrors and scales have an ability to tell us the truth that most of the time we don't want to hear. As one writer noted, every line, every wrinkle, every gray hair, 
every missing hair, every liver spot, every blemish, it all shows up in the mirror. Now, when you're a guy and you wake up and you look at yourself in the mirror, it's kind of a sobering thing. But ladies, you have a certain option, at least to try to upgrade things. You can wear products like concealer, which, by the way, is an interesting sounding thing for something to put on themselves. There's a sermon in there somewhere. I bought my mirror this morning. If you're a guy, it's a little scary because you know when you wake up and you take a look in that mirror, that's as good as it's going to get all day long. It actually could get worse. You could flip it over to the five times magnification. It's not good. You see, that's the power of a mirror. And then there's the scale. Did you know the figures are out? On average, each of us has gained five pounds during quarantine. Here's what's even more disturbing in terms of household averages. My wife told me yesterday she's down a couple of those pounds. And so kind of if you average it out, they had to accrue somewhere. And so I bought my little fancy scale. We'll check this thing out. Haven't stepped on it since quarantine began. Oh, wait for, oh, mama. Hold on a second here. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. That's the power of the scale. It has an ability to tell us the truth. I mean, think about it, right? The, the scale, it, we even try to kid ourselves when it comes to the scale. How many of us have ever chosen to step on it right after dinner? No one. We weigh ourselves either right after we wake up, right after we take off our shoes, or right after we go to the bathroom. And why? Who are we fooling other than ourselves? And we like to fool ourselves and each other. Hence the invention of slimming mirrors and, and concealer and toupees and elevator shoes. In fact, we don't just do this physically, we do it spiritually. And guys, that's where the danger lies. See, I, I can spray in some of that hair stuff on the back of my head here to cover up this increasing bald spot I'm dealing with, but I still know it's there. I'm aware of the follicle shortcomings. Spiritually, though, morally, at the heart level, that's where I'm off, often usually kidding myself. I'm, I'm not seeing myself right, and that's what accounts for the lack of transformation in the lives of so many of us. Now, I'm going to pause and put my shoes back on here because speaking to you in my socks is less than comfortable. James, the brother of Jesus, who... According to the Scriptures, Jesus had at least four brothers and had some sisters, and I know that's probably blowing some of your minds. James said this regarding this propensity that we have. He said, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. In other words, in other words, it's not okay to just know what's right and good and moral. If you think by knowing a lot about the Bible or Jesus' teaching, if you think that's what it means to be a Christian, then you're kidding yourself. If I were to ask you what Jesus said the greatest commandment was, many of you might know that it's to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. James would say that's great that you know that. It's super important. But don't deceive yourself into thinking that because you know it, because you've memorized it, because you put it on a magnet on your fridge. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're fulfilling it. 
James says you need to do what it says. Now, I've been in ministry a long time. And a huge key to life transformation, to peace and to hope, is to know the Scriptures, to memorize them, to press them into your heart. These are not just ink blots on papyrus. These are words of life and truth, and we need to know them. We really do. Yet, yet, I also need to tell you that sometimes it's the people who know more Scripture than anyone who can be some of the meanest, most judgmental people out there. And then here comes the comparison. Anyone, James says, who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and then immediately forgets, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. In other words, the truth of the Scriptures, the laws, the commandments, Jesus' teachings, Paul's writings, these things are like a spiritual mirror for us. They, when we examine ourselves in light of them, they reveal every line, every wrinkle, and every blemish on our hearts, on our souls, on our character. James says, listen, listen, listen. Don't just listen to it or read it. Use these things as a mirror. Look at yourself and then do something. And see, that's the point of this series, right? That together we want to come out of quarantine better than we went in. We want to do something. Mirrors, scales, and Scripture should all have the same humbling effect because they tell us the truth about ourselves. The writer of the book of Hebrews explained how it works. He said, for the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Seeing ourselves correctly in light of the truth is important, and it's important for three reasons. The first is that nothing is hidden from God's sight. He knows not just our actions, but our motivations. He looks at our hearts, and it is to this God at least for those of us that are followers of Jesus, to whom we're going to have to give an account of our lives. And it's this inability to see ourselves correctly that underlies one of the famous parables Jesus told. Matthew recorded it this way, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who knew the... Oh, <laughs> it doesn't say, but only the one who knew the Word of God, memorized the Word of God, who got a tattoo of the Word of God? Nope. Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in and your name perform miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, I, I, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And so one reason is, that we're going to need to give an account for our lives, and, and oftentimes we're blind to ourselves. The second reason is seeing ourselves correctly is important because you cannot change what you do not see. You can't change what you can't see, or you can't change what you're unwilling to see. The scale, just quite painfully to me, revealed something that I might not have seen or noticed. But now I know. 
So I got to cut the carbs. I got to go on a run. The Word of God might reveal, as I hold up my life to it, that perhaps I am not as loving as I think I am, or as kind, or forgiving, or self-sacrificing, or obedient as I thought I was, which is both why I need a Savior, since I can't be good enough to save myself, and why I need to change. Now, I'm going to give you the third reason. If you want to put a verse on your fridge, or tattoo one on your arm for that matter, Here's the verse you should use. It comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. This is what Paul told them. For, for, he said, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Guys, you know this. We are caught up in the most narcissistic time in human history. And this is so dangerous to our souls. Narcissism's actually been called the modern epidemic. These past decades have, have witnessed a societal shift from a commitment to the collective good to a focus on the aggrandizement of self. We're all now, in a sense, online celebrities at this point, making sure everybody knows what we think and where we went, and what we've accomplished. Do you know why we do this? It's deep in us. There's something within each of us that underlies it. John Ortberg's done some great work on it. He writes that there's a dynamic in the field of social psychology, and it's been called the self-serving bias. And the self-serving bias is pretty much universal. What it is is it's the tendency to take too much credit for my success, and too little responsibility for my failures. To live in a state of self-delusion that serves my own ego and my own needs, my, my need to feel good about myself. So I, I live, in a sense, in a world of illusion about the reality of my character and competence. This tendency, which was taught about so clearly by Jesus and other biblical writers, has been the object of an immense amount of research in our day. For instance, researchers surveyed, this is great, 829,000, and I've, got, I've had a few high schoolers in my time, 829,000 high school students and asked the question, are you above or below average in your ability to get along with other people? Now, if you think about it, statistically, half and half, what percentage of high school students would be below average in their ability to relate with other people? 50%. But what percentage of high school students do you think rated themselves below average? The reality is 50% of them belong below average, but the percentage of them that they actually put themselves there, zero. Not even a single percent of them. Not just that, but 25% of them said they were in the top 1% of their ability to get along with other people. 25%. Some of you know George Barnard does a lot of church research. He found that, this is great, 90% of all pastors rated themselves above average in teaching and preaching. These are the same people who have to preach on Romans 12.3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. 90% of them say they're in the top 50%. 94% of college faculty members believe that they're above average teachers. Think about what that means. When their raises are given... Most faculty members who don't get one generally believe that they're victims of some injustice. And you can see where resentment and conflict start to become inevitable. 
self-serving bias. It's why when your kid gets a bad grade or fails his driving test, yeah, it's because the teacher is bad or the instructor was mean, not because they didn't study or practice. Same thing holds true in our marriages. Both spouses consistently think they contribute well more than 50% to the division of labor issues. I'll give you one more. Most people, and this is the ultimate irony of this concept, when the concept of self-serving bias is explained to them, most people rate themselves as better than average at not falling prey to the self-serving bias. Other people fall for that, but I wouldn't. I'm better than that. I'm better than average at avoiding the self-serving bias. David Myers writes, the self-serving bias means that, that our becoming aware of our own sin is like trying to see our own eyeballs. There's another bias that you're aware of. It's self-serving bias's first cousin. It's called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is why Fox News and MSNBC exist. Confirmation bias is our tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information that confirms or supports our own prior personal beliefs or values. And the internet has made this even more possible. This is why all of us on our Facebook feeds right now, we're all epidemiologists. Let's be honest. I do it too. Oftentimes we don't really seek the truth because the truth is like a mirror and we don't like mirrors. We tend to run for evidence that supports our preferred conclusions. This is not the kind of sober judgment regarding ourselves that Paul is calling us to. We have all become wise in our own eyes. We now know what is best, what is right, and what is good. But if that's the case, here's what James said. Who is wise and understanding among you? To which, based on the biases we discussed, 94 or so percent of you would stand right now. James says, well, then let them show it by their social media posts. No. By their good life and by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Listen to that, friends. Did you hear what he just said there? Not only did he pick up on the don't just be hearers of the word, but do it, but that wisdom leads not to haughtiness, but to humility. Guys, biblically, the smarter you are, the wiser you are, the more time you hold the mirror of truth up and look at yourself, the humbler you'll be. In fact, he goes on, he says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it, I might add, or post about it, or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you'll find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then it is peace-loving, considerate, it's submissive, it's full of mercy and good fruit, it's impartial, oh my gosh, it's impartial, and it's sincere. 
Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Wise people are humble. Wise people are humble. And their wisdom is displayed not in boasting or posting about what they know, but in how they live their lives. Wise people do not make everything about them. Wise people are peace-loving. They're considerate. They're submissive, full of mercy. They're impartial and they're sincere peacemakers. My friends, you just looked into the mirror of Scripture. And so question number one this morning, how do you look in the mirror of humility? What kind of wisdom have you been putting on display? Are you wise? Are you humble? I I, I love the quote from C.S. Lewis regarding humble people. He said, don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably, all you'll think about him is that he seemed to be a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And then he went on, and here's your quarantine tip for the week. Here's how he concluded. If anybody would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell them the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and it's a biggish step, too. At least nothing, whatever, can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Q-tip one. Reflect and realize the way in which pride rules your heart. This week, look for examples of the self-serving bias or confirmation bias in your own life. Realize that we all do it, but until you become aware of how deep the pride issue is for each of us, we're going to continue to be agents of worldly wisdom and envy and division. Guys, if you want to practice that, I'll give you two things to do this week. Here's the first. Pick some issue that you're really sure about and pretty passionate about, and then do this. Go do the research to prove yourself wrong. Now, you may not ever get there, but you sure as heck will begin to see someone else's side of things. Some of you might know this is how Lee Strobel, one of the best Christian apologists of our era, came to know Christ. By his own admission, he was a cocky and proud journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And when his wife became this passionate follower of Jesus, he he set out to prove her wrong. And guess what? He wound up on bended knee. That resulted in one of the most influential Christian works of the last couple decades called The Case for Christ. If you haven't read it, you should grab it. Imagine pursuing what pursuing this kind of heavenly wisdom might do for you. Second way to practice humility. Serve someone you are alienated from. Serve someone who wronged you or maybe you have a problem with. Serve someone who you don't agree with. You know, come to think, we actually have a model for something like this. 
do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That should sound familiar by now. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. See, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the criminal's death of a cross. Humility is not something we learn about. It's not something we preach about. It's not something we read about. Humility is something we practice. It is a deed and not a doctrine. Look, it's a problem for preachers, too. This week in my study, I was pretty personally convicted by the story of Tony Campolo when he was a seminary in, um, his professor had each of the students, he required them to prepare and deliver a sermon. And the professor told them at the end of the class that the professor and all of the other students would evaluate the sermons. Now, if you know Campolo, he is a world-class gifted writer and speaker. And here's what he said. He said he knew that his sermon was perfect. He said, I got up and I nailed it. I delivered it well. And when he got to the conclusion, he knew that he had preached to their hearts. He said, I was really proud of what I'd done. His sermon, he thought, was wonderful. It was powerful. It was good. In fact, his classmates, when it was their turn to grade him, they all heaped praise on Tony. And of course, Tony was beaming from ear to ear. He couldn't wait to get back his professor's evaluation. That was going to make his day. And as he received it, he, he flipped through all the evaluation papers that he received. And of course, his professor's was the last. He hadn't written just a single line. Or excuse me, he had written just a single line. It didn't mention the content of Tony's message or, or Tony's delivery. It just said, and I quote, Tony, you can't convince people that you were wonderful and that Jesus is wonderful in the same sermon. Ouch. This Memorial Day weekend, may we take a note on the humility of all of the men and the women who, like Christ Jesus, selflessly laid down their lives so that you and I might live. But let's not just commemorate it. Let's just not celebrate it. Let's do it. This week, lift up the hood on your heart a little bit. Let the mirror and the scale of the Scriptures reveal to you where pride has gotten itself a foothold. Practice humility by overcoming your self-serving biases so you don't just keep blaming everyone else for your failures. And then, and then, go and serve someone, someone who owes you, someone you think is, in a sense, maybe you wouldn't put it this way, but lesser than you, thinks differently than you, doesn't agree with you, doesn't act the way you want them to. And in so doing, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Happy Memorial Day, guys. I'll see you back here next week. Do me a favor, though. Pick up the mirror and the scales. Don't forget what they tell you. 
and then go and do. I'll see you back here next Sunday morning.